best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. So happy to have you with us. My name's Mike Rankin, joined by James Fox, and today we have a very special guest, somebody I'm sure you're very familiar with. Mr. Delicious 13, at Mr. Delicious 13 on Twitter. That is the one and only Beef Loaf. Beef, thanks so much for jumping on. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. This is kind of a, a new thing for me. I, I don't think I've been on, I've been on a few different podcasts, but I don't think I've been on any podcasts that are as uh, professional as you guys, you know, doing real work with the team. So I hope I, I, hope I don't embarrass myself with some of the things <laughs> I'm about to say. Yeah, real work with the team. Hey, I appreciate yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be you'll be fine, like in our quest to unite White Sox Twitter. So okay. how about it? Great. So it's good. Of course, you can find Beef Loaf stuff from the 108 um, at the 108 podcast. He's been outstanding. Obviously, all the all the stuff that they do, uh, and we'd love to have a conversation with you, Beef, because we're excited about White Sox baseball, and you're in tune with the minor league side of things as well, which is which is great. So we want to have just this elaborate conversation of where the organization stands at the moment. Uh, but first I wanted to kick it off with you and your story about the 108. If you want to just kind of summarize where it all started, where the passion and inspiration came from and, and how you guys feel where you are today in, in the White Sox media world. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, I, I, it goes all the way back to uh, my brother and I. So my brother's Teresa E. My brother and I were season ticket holders starting all the way back in 2018. We we got a what what was then a weekend package, a Saturday Sunday package. Uh, started going to games regularly. Eventually bumped up our package to uh, half a season. Uh, now that didn't exist at the time, but you could kind of work with people. The the attendance wasn't that great, so they'd let you slide a Friday in there with those Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, started meeting more people and ended up um, meeting my sock summer, who who now the three of us all work together on this, hanging out at a lot of games, hanging out pregame. Uh, my sock summer and I both live really close to the ballpark, so we're walking distance, just friends, and we kind of at some point decided, you know, we should probably do something with this. And and section 108 where we sit started to become a place where people would congregate at the games, mostly just people that we already knew, our friends. But when any of our friends would come to the game. We're longtime White Sox fans, and a lot of our friends are White Sox fans. Everyone would come and nestle in there, and we'd have like the little group, and all kinds of crazy conversations would would start occurring. We thought, well, maybe we could kind of start trying to bring this to everybody else and 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 put this out there. So we we started a blog, and it was just a normal WordPress blog. Uh, got going a little bit, started to get a little bit of traction, specifically with um, 
with fan stuff. So uh, we had written an article about bathroom etiquette, how to how to navigate the bathroom at the ballpark. <laughs> and My Sock Summer is also really good at um, uh, analyzing the giveaways and talking about things that are upcoming and things that the Sox should do sort of from the promotion side. And that's really where we started to get a little bit of uh, momentum behind us. Now, we didn't have any plans to do, and this is like, we started like 2016. So we didn't have any plans of doing a podcast or anything. Somewhere along the line, toward, towards the middle of 2017, we met uh, a brewery called Baderbrow, and we ended up going to one of their tailgates, and we just sort of met on Twitter, and we ended up hanging out with them. We had been toying around with the idea of like, well, everyone does all these things. Let's do something a little different. And I actually have a hot tub in my backyard, and my sock Summer and I were just brainstorming one day, and he's like, why don't we just do a video from your hot tub? No one does that. We'll, we'll just <laughs> put that out there on Twitter and see what it is. And, and if you go... If you can find the very first video, it's like a Periscope thing, so I don't even know if it exists anymore. It's like 11 minutes, and it's like that scene in Wayne's World 2 where Wayne leaves and only Garth is there and he's frozen on camera. That's us <laughs> for 11 minutes. We have no idea what's going on. We're trying to talk about stuff. Now, since then, and at that time, actually, the uh, Baderbrow uh, agreed to sponsor it. So they would give us beer, and we would drink their beer in the tub. We'd sort of advertise for them. Mm, okay. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, at, at that time, it was it was just like, okay, we'll get in the tub, we'll talk about the White Sox. And then we got the idea, why don't we put it on, and people started watching it a little bit, so the, you get a little bit of traction. But once we started asking for questions for it, and then the questions started getting more and more lewd and outrageous, that's when it really started to, like, get an interest, because we would answer basically any question that people asked us about a wide variety of things, uh, lots of different type of content, loosely tied to the White Sox, but maybe not necessarily. And then that ran kind of through 2018. Uh, Brow went under, so we didn't have a sort of a, a beer group anymore. And then started 2019, mm -hmm. uh, we hooked in with Goose. And so Goose Island now uh, towers the, the Sunday soak. Congratulations on everything that you've been able to accomplish. <laughs> it's, it's a very unorthodox approach in, in being so... <laughs> So prevalent in White Sox media, but I think that's why people kind of aggregate to you guys so much is that it's relatable, it's fun, you know, and, and it gets the job done. And I'm, I'm pulling up an article that you just put together related to the 2020 White Sox rotation, and I see that you incorporated, I mean, it's grown to the point where Steve Stone's wearing your shirt. Yes, yes, Steve Stone, yeah, so, uh, yeah, a friend of Steve Stone reached out about uh, a shirt, and we had actually just gotten a new shipment of shirts in, and my sock summer was able to get him a t-shirt, and that was wonderful that he'd be willing to put that on and, and take a picture of himself and put that out to the world, it was really, really cool, we were, we were shocked and pleased. <laughs> That's awesome, so you said 2008, right, you got season tickets? Uh, yeah, 2008 was the first year, and that that was the year of the the blackout game, and that was the year. Of, like, that was such a weird year because 2007 they kind of stunk, like they weren't any good. And then they went out and got Carlos Quinton, and he was amazing right off the get. And then John Danks and Gavin Floyd became good all of a sudden, and and it looked, and all of a sudden you had like a a pretty good team there, and it was, I mean, obviously a great year to have a as our first year with season tickets. And it's all downhill since then. You've seen <laughs> lots and lots of bad baseball. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so I'm not going to have you rank, like, the, the worst right fielders you've ever seen. But obviously this is the Future Sox podcast, and, you know, you're familiar with the minor league system. So one thing um, that I do want to ask is, I guess, with the team being good again, finally, hopefully, how will that change your consumption of minor league baseball? Oh, that that's a great question. So from our perspective, 
perspective as, as doing sort of what we do. You know, we we realize that we don't have media training. We're not the best at writing stuff, but we do analyze the team and we do think critically about the team. And so from our perspective, we're looking at it sort of like three different slugs, the way we look at the minors. One is the guys that are going to come here and they're going to basically be uh, integral part of this team, right? Those guys are materially here with the exception of Nick Madrigal will probably be here, you know, six weeks into the season. And then the, the only other guy remaining that's probably going to be an integral part of this next window that, that we're sure of right now is Andrew Vaughn. Okay, so that's slug number one. Slug number two is uh, the group of minor leaguers that are probably going to become the role players on the next team. So instead of having to go out into the marketplace to replace a bench player or maybe a second division starter that you're going to have to, to put in a lineup because not everyone can be a star. Um, so that group is kind of like, we're, we're keeping an eye on that. I think the White Sox kind of have those guys. I think they've got the Danny Mendix. They've got the corner outfield uh, slog. One of those guys will, will pop up. A uh, thing that I'm excited about seeing is which of the bullpen arms is going to pop because Rick Hans put a lot of resources into that, trading international cap space um, and, and making a bunch of flip trades to try and grab these guys. And then the third slug, which is what I'm mostly paying attention to right now or been focusing on a lot. I wrote something about this about two months ago, but some guys that I that I really am hoping pop are the sort of the next wave and or the guys that are going to be trade capital. Because the way I look at it is like I don't think any of the more older, mature prospects that are still in the minors that we don't consider integral are that much trade capital they're more you can flip them and get a reliever but these younger guys the 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 two high school arms that they picked up in the in the most recent draft um what's the kid's name benjamin bailey that the big kid that hits for yeah yeah so he's super young he's probably going to be in you know rookie ball for the first time this year right yeah like like that group dj gladney james beard those guys if one of those guys, like that's the group I'm going to really be keeping an eye on because if they start to catch any momentum and all the lists start picking them up, then you have a either a significant trade asset or someone who's fast tracked to the majors and is going to help out because the White Sox just aren't going to be able to afford everyone. I don't think when we get to the end here. And when I say the end, I mean like when Moncada and Giolito are no longer under their first contracts. I'm not sure they'll be able to retain everyone. So you're going to kind of by that time need some reinforcements. And so I think those kids are the ones I'm going to keep a real close eye on both through future socks and then also through uh, some of the national outlets, you know, the fan graphs of the world, the athletic, uh, you know, MLB pipeline, et cetera. You mentioned a lot of those young names. And for us at future socks, as we release our top 30 list, a lot of them found their way on the bottom half, which is incredible to see. And then those two high school arms, they're in the top 15, which is crazy to think about. And I think you bring up a really good point because with that particular group of players, you know, aside from the Rutherfords who are, you know, 23 and Adolfo and Basabe who have their own issues uh, related to injury, it's it's important to pay attention to these young guys who, who are 2018, 2019 draft picks because when when you feel like everything's moving in the right direction – the White Sox are going to use those pieces either as a part of the future or, like you said, as trade bait. Now, that perception totally changes as Sox fans now because we spent since 2016 looking forward to building this minor league system. We're here. Now, it changes if they're good. If they're good, you use those assets to acquire major league ready talent. Now, uh, what would you say about that perspective as we stand entering 2020? 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and I think that's the key thing for, for White Sox fans to be paying attention to. Like, just, you know, I, I know we can kind of get in our own ecosystem here and kind of be a little tunnel vision and just look at our own stuff. But if you look at the broader major leagues and you see the movement that goes on when there are trades and, and when a good player sort of gets moved on to another team, it's not always guys that are top 100 list guys. It's guys that are just off that list, but they're 18 or 19 years old and extremely projectable. And that's the group that that we were just talking about there and that you, I really want to keep an eye on. I want to see, will any of these guys take a step? Will any of these guys sort of have a big year, even if they're at, you know, uh, Arizona League or if they're, uh, you know, uh, in in the low A or, or even short season, any sort of like uh, excellent season or excellent progression out of any of them could be a real big move for the White Sox. And, and it's it's something that's a little bit under the radar probably for most Sox fans now, but I think they're going to start to get in tune with it when they start looking around and seeing, well, this White Sox team is a mid-80s win team, and now we've got two avenues to try to solve the, the, you know, the final five, six, eight expected wins, and that's buy a big free agent, which, you know, no offense to our White Sox uh, organization, they don't have a great success rate at, or – Making a trade and making a trade can sometimes be easier because you always have teams that are trying to turn over a contract or, or, or get on to the next phase of their team. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like the tiers that, you know, you described, like putting those guys in. And obviously, you know, look, we cover a lot of these kids, but look, they're not all going to play in Chicago and they're definitely not all going to make it to the majors. And you see, like, you know, there's a whole faction of White Sox Twitter that's like already freaking out that like the system's going to be bad. Like as soon as like Andrew Vaughn or Nick Madrigal are on the team and, and it's obviously way premature and you don't consider the fact that, you know, they'll have like 10 guys on their big league team that were once top 50 prospects. So right. that's why like some of the, what they're doing in the international market that we've kind of been reporting on, like th- they're important things. And I think like, you know, if a couple of these super young guys pop, they are trade bait. I mean, we saw the Cubs years ago. I mean, they're, they're trading. Uh, oh, Glaber uh, Torres. Yeah, Glaber Torres for like a reliever to win a World Series. And like everybody's freaking out like about that. I can't wait until the White Sox do that. Like I cover, pro- I cover prospects and I can't wait until the day that they're trading them to like win. So, you know, we're, I'm, I'm with you on that. That, that should be fun. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the phase everyone should be looking forward to. Everyone should. And, and that's why sort of just keeping a little bit of an eye and just, just seeing who pops. I mean, truth be told, even guys who are a little bit older and closer to, to 40 man uh, necessity, like someone like Lennon Sosa or someone even like, you know, a Jonathan Stever, those guys even would have more interest than the guys that are sort of already like the old prospects, you know, so even those guys could potentially move. And, and uh, you, you, uh, you bring up the, uh, the point of the, the Sox having a lower end system after these top guys graduate. And that's undoubtedly true, at least in, in isolation right now. But a, a while back, I was listening to a, a podcast. It was a rotowire one. So it was like their, their prospect people. So it was fantasy driven. And, and it was uh, James Anderson and, and Clay Link. And I think one of the things they were talking about is even some of the historically bad farm systems still churn out four, five, six major leaguers, you know, bullpen arms or backup guys that are really useful or utility players. So even if it looks down, even if the even if the uh, farm system looks like it's in the bottom, let's say, 10, that's okay. There's still going to be some players that come out of it, role players. We don't. I don't know who they're going to be, but they're going to going to be someone going to pop out of it. So it's not a nothing. It's something that should still be paid attention to for sure. 
Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, our entire life, like we were told that the White Sox have a really bad farm system and Kenny Williams was still able to trade guys to pick up guys. So, you know, right. it happened then. I'm sure it can happen now. So the next part of our podcast will be you being able to talk about your favorite prospect in the White Sox system, Nick Madrigal. <laughs> okay. And and I guess I would say, would, would you prefer as somebody that goes to games all the time that he just starts the season at second base and they just get it over with? I would actually, I and and so I've I've written some things. I've been a little critical of Nick Madrigal. Not, not critical. Just I don't understand how the profile will work because when I look at his profile, I see like Tony Gwynn or Wade Boggs, or I see like Joe Panic, and I really don't want to watch Joe Panic every day. Well, so yeah, as as a as a fan, as a season ticket holder, yes, I do want to see him every day. I mean, there is there is a little bit of appeal to me to seeing six weeks of Danny Mendick to see how real that might be as sort of a, a backup player, utility player. But when, and if you're really considering it win now, I mean, you have to have Nick Madrigal on the opening day roster. I would think. That's a, that's a fascinating take because, you know, Madrigal gets to Charlotte in 2019 and his, it is a first professional season, uh, first full professional season gets, you know, flies through the system last year. He was outstanding. Yep. And it, it's interesting to think that a guy with only 29 games of experience in AAA uh, can make an opening day roster with with a good spring. But I think expectations are a little different when a fourth overall pick is attached to you. Uh, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on Madrigal's, um, just what he's able to bring to the table. Obviously, it's the low strikeouts, uh, the high contact rate. But, you know, there are some trade-offs with a player who – consistently makes contact although he doesn't strike out right because th- that contact can turn into outs can you just elaborate more about how you feel about magical sure yeah so so a lot of my concerns about magical obviously the high contact rate is great i'm not sure if if three percent strikeout rate in uh the high minors ends up being three percent strikeout rate in the majors i hope it is but most of my concern is is with the power and not with the power for power's sake obviously i'd love if every hitter in the lineup was a power hitter and can hit 30 home runs, but that's never going to happen. And it, and it's, I don't, not that I need him to hit for power because I just love home runs, but in order for him to reach his potential, you know, he can't assume um, that he's going to BABIP his way to a 340 average every year, a 340 on base percentage. And if the guy doesn't walk or isn't capable of walking, that's going to be a big problem for him. There's going to be years where it's going to be really lean. So I, I what I did, uh, but uh, I guess it was towards the end of last season. I just sort of ran you. I couldn't get uh, exit velocity info for his level, but you could see the spray charts and you could see he doesn't really drive the ball that much. So what I did is I took like bottom 10% um, hard hit rate on fan graphs. And I just sort of averaged out what their walk rates are. And that group surprisingly did walk more than I thought they did, but it was still well below league average. They walked about 6% of the time. And so, but you had some outliers in there. You had like Malik Smith actually walks more than I would have thought, you know, whereas Billy Hamilton, they just knocked the bat out of his hand. You know, he's, he's not going to walk. You know? So I, it depends on the type of hitter Madrigal is. I've heard that he, he has uh, great discipline and doesn't swing out of the zone. But if you're a major league pitcher and you have good stuff, you may just dare him to hit 340 on you. You may just throw everything in the strike zone and never worry about walking him, you know, and and, and only he's only going to get the walks on, on the off chance that, a pitcher just doesn't have their control that day. So most of my concerns are are with him reaching base. I assume he'll probably be a decent defender, 
Uh, I assume he'll be a decent base runner, even though his stolen base numbers aren't great in the minors. But I, I assume all that stuff will get fixed. Either they'll make him stop running or whatever. So, like, all of it for me is contingent on where the walk rate ends up. If he walks 4% of the time, that's probably not going to be good enough. If he walks 8% of the time, he'll be a really good leadoff hitter. So it's it's just that minor of an edge. Yeah, no, you're right about that. I mean, and we've talked about it. So I think people give you a pretty hard time and, you know, all things considered, like I, I was kidding when I brought it up, but I, you know, you're, I mean, I think your concerns are valid and people had the same concerns when he was drafted. I mean, we talk about a 3% strikeout rate and how, you know, can he do it in the majors? I don't know if it's a good thing if he does it in the majors. You can right. you can make the argument that it's not, that he's this, like, high average Juan Pierre type that hates striking out so much that he also doesn't walk and he just pounds everything into the ground constantly. I mean, you know, an out is an out. Right. So I, I think where... I think where he's a little bit underrated is the fact that he he could play gold glove caliber defense at second and be a good base runner. So, like, he really doesn't need to be that good. But, you know, when you look back on it and there was, you know, a guy like a Jared Kelenic behind him and the White Sox went a little bit safe in the draft, that's where, you know, I think some people have just been critical of the pick. So I, I think we're going to find out pretty soon because I think he's going to – I don't think he's going to start with the team, but I think he's going to be there pretty quick and spend the majority of the season there. That's really good stuff. Uh, fantastic opinion from both of you guys. And I'm, I'm with you collectively. Um, I, I'm a little – concerned about magical but i feel like he'll translate just fine to the majors of course we'll see um but i think his profile and what he can bring to the table there's there's something there that can be really special all right let's move on to another player that beef i know you're a big fan of and that's uh right-handed pitcher dylan cease now before we continue on with this conversation i just want to make this point um dylan cease in five minor league seasons and of course it's minor league seasons he spent a lot of time in single a getting his stuff right came to the White Sox and progressed. But in five minor league seasons, this is in 83 appearances, 80 starts, he gave up a total of 16 home runs. Then last year, he gives up 15 home runs and 14 starts at the big league level. Now, that tells me that, of course, in the minors, you have this dominating stuff. You're going to miss bats, whether you miss your spot or not. He got to the majors last year. He didn't command his fastball, and he got hit hard. What's your opinion on that, Beef? That's uh, yeah. I mean, to me, that's the exact problem. And I, and I've noticed, I noticed it, and, and and maybe it's just me being someone who who kind of goes in the other direction sometimes. I, I I'll look at things counterintuitively. If everyone's going one way, I'll sort of look: is that right? Is that the way it should be? And I also just being at a bunch of his starts, and it never seemed like he was very good. I mean, the, the starts I can remember he was good were against a very muted uh, Detroit Tigers team. But, but I think even going all throughout the minors, he had problems with command. And his, his command was poor coming all the way up. And now he had some sparkling seasons down there, particularly his, his time in A. but he had a 38% strikeout rate. And you can't assume you're going to come to the majors and be Garrett Cole and strike out 38% of the people. So he's had some problems, especially up in the zone with the, with the four-seamer, hasn't been able to get it across the plate. And I just fear that... He's kind of never going to find that. He, he's never been a guy who's had below 10% walk rate. And if you look at the last four or five seasons in the majors and you look at sort of the, the, the pitchers, the qualifying pitchers that had those walk rates, they either weren't very good or they had gigantic strikeout rates. So he's really got to pump up his strikeout rate if he, if he wants to hang on here. I think there's a strong possibility that 
a lot of what was being said when he was coming up through the minors is that he was going to probably end up being a reliever, that that might still be the case, that he might be the type of guy that just ends up having to throw a million curveballs and, and comes in in high leverage situations. I don't know. I, I see the 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 uh, White Sox Twitter market sort of, they really love Dylan Cease. They really don't like Ronaldo Lopez. And I sort of look at him in the opposite direction. Ronaldo Lopez is nothing fantastic, but he at least – has durability. I know he's going to go out there and throw some innings and with a better offense. And if he can even just fine tune himself a little bit, he could probably be slightly below league average and be super valuable. Dylan Cease has just a lot of uh, downside risk. In my opinion, he may become very good. I, I don't know, but what I've seen so far just doesn't look like it to me. Yeah. I mean, you're not alone with that thought either. I mean, there are even like a lot of, a lot of evaluators that I know the guys at Fangraphs always just kind of thought Dylan Cease was going to be a reliever. Some of them thought that he might be one of these guys that's like a three-inning reliever, you know? And, you know, that, like, teams were just going to go to, you know, having multiple, like, multi-inning relievers instead of starters. Like, for a while, that was, like, the trend and that maybe he would be one of those guys. I mean, it's obviously all about fastball command with Dylan Cease. And last year, he didn't get his fastball over the plate, and he got hammered. So um, he he claims that he's – made some changes, you know, to make the spin rate better on the fastball. And we probably won't find out much in the spring with him pitching in Arizona. So it's going to be one of these things that we'll have to monitor, obviously, as the season starts. Right. And I think he's going to get, uh, he'll get a, a lot of rope on this. I mean, uh, d- depending on uh, health and, and such, he'll probably get a lot of rope on this. One other thing I was looking at too is, you know, Yasmani Grandal came in and it was, and he's a noted very strong pitch framer. But when I dug into the numbers a little bit, especially the StatCast numbers, up in the zone, kind of where Dylan Cease has the problems, he's really not any better than James McCann. It's it's lower in the zone where where Grandal really feasts on. So I'm not even sure that necessarily Grandal is going to be able to help him. I think this is a maybe just the Dylan Cease problem. And if he writes it, I mean, I'm sure he's going to be good. But if he never ends up doing it, yeah, I, I, I just don't know. We'll see. I think, uh, man, that is that is such a good perspective to have because it you know sometimes we get blinded by the stuff and he sure does have good stuff and you mentioned it he'll break off a curveball and that could be his best pitch on any given day Um, and he still has three other elite offerings to to come at a hitter with but the command the command is an issue you know last year I think was was a positive step for him to pitch in the big leagues there was there are clear outliers in his game that can be addressed going into this season so of course, Cease is going to get the opportunity. We'll see how that progresses. Really good stuff, Beef. Appreciate your time. We're going to give you a couple more here, and then we'll let you go. Um, okay. Just looking forward to spring training now. I know Michael Kopech is a huge topic of conversation. Where do you see he begins the season as spring training pitchers and catchers have, have reported? I, I kind of assume that they're going to try to ramp up Michael Kopech, and they're going to go slow with him. You know, he's a workout freak, and he's probably on the, the latter end of recovery. But realistically, the, the next White Sox uh, championship window is, right now is a really big bet on Michael Kopech and Luis Robert. And you don't want to screw either of those up. So they, I think they're going to be careful with him. I think they're going to kind of ease him in. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say we'll probably see him somewhere in May, early May, mid-May. They're going to they'll ramp him up to a point where he's going to kind of be ready and he'll just go from there. It wouldn't surprise me, assuming health, with the the sort of starting pitching depth that the White Sox have right now, where they kind of really have six starters. 
if they didn't try to work it where they skipped him, you know, uh, once in a while, just to sort of keep him fresh and, uh, you know, just are very careful with the amount of innings that they end up letting him throw. Ultimately, though, I think that he ends up being the best pitcher on the staff. And I like Lucas Giolito. I liked him before. I was very sad when he was terrible in 2018, but very happy in 19 when he was very good. But I still think that the upside of Michael Kopech is probably the highest. And then you you guys sitting out in the 108 where you do, obviously, like, you know, I think people come at you with, like, right field stuff, obviously, being more important than some of the other spots for you guys. I don't recall your thoughts on the Nomar Mazzara trade. What were you expecting this offseason, I guess? What were you hoping for? And then after you kind of realized that that was going to be the guy, what do you what do you think about it now? That's funny. It's funny to bring it up because right in the beginning of the offseason, I, I went on uh, I went on uh, Lockdown Sports podcast with Herb Lawrence, and I told him that I think – I can't remember if, we, if I said this on air or not, but I told him I think that they should just lay back with right field because to me the right field group that was out there while an upgrade none of it was really outstanding to me i i was i was of the position wait back see who falls off see who doesn't end up being that costly and leap on to whoever that player is now it's turning out to be yasiel puig but even marcelo zuna wasn't that pricey either so i mean the costs were not extremely high for these players but as far as Mazar went, when I saw them make the trade, a lot of people were really down on it because of how early it was in the uh, in the offseason. But to me, immediately it looked like an upside play. Immediately it looked like, you know what, we see something with this post-type prospect. And I love post-type prospects. I love anyone who was supposed to be good. Everyone's down on them. They've kind of not been that good. You can kind of get those players for cheap. And now it may not work. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I actually, I didn't think they had done it specifically to do a platoon. I think if you were going to just do a right field platoon, you could have just gone out in the marketplace and bought a couple of those guys and give up nothing out of your farm. I think they saw something that they really liked here. It may not work, but I, I like it. I like the gamble. It's, I think it's worth taking. Yeah, I, I think they think it's Carlos Quentin. Now, that, that, <laughs> so. So, so that is probably absolutely crazy, but it's similar in the fact that Quentin didn't have as much major league time, but it was similar coming through. Like, you know, the Texas Rangers wouldn't trade Nomar Mazzara for Chris Sale, you know, which sounds absolutely absurd. But, right. you know, he was in the majors at 20. He just refused to make changes. Obviously, the White Sox aren't one of these, like, teams that's known as being cutting edge. So when they say, like, oh, we see something with the swing we can fix, like, people kind of scoffed at that, I think. Yeah. But with some of the changes they've made, I, I'm willing to see if uh, Frank Minichino can unlock something. And you know what? If he can't, he'll be DFA'd next offseason, and they still need a right fielder. Right. right. I mean, some of it I thought, too, was just biding time. So right now you've got a glut of corner outfielders in your upper minors who you've got to sort of make a decision on, right? But you're not ready to make a decision on any of them at this point because they're not quite ready. So Mazzara, at a minimum, buys you one year and maybe two years to kind of figure that out. So I thought some of it was just like, wait a minute, we've got a lot invested here. If one of these players pops, we don't want to have $60 million worth of Nick Castellanos in right field that we can't do anything with because we've got some young, talented player that broke through and we're ready for him. So I think it was part of it was like looking at it like, well, let's just see what else we have. And if you get this player to pop, great. And like you said, if you don't, that's fine. You just, you're just not going to pay him next year. And let, you'll let him walk and you'll figure out something else. Beef, really good stuff. My last question to you is, among the White Sox top prospects, who is it that you're looking forward to keeping an eye on most in 2020? 
I mean, I'll give you two guys. One of them I talked about earlier, but I'm I'm such a sucker for the long ball. You know, chicks dig the long ball. The beef loaf also digs the long ball. So <laughs> my my two guys that I really am pulling for, looking forward to, and and hoping they they do their thing. Micradolfo, number one. You know, he's already on the forty man, so he got to get his stuff together really quick. And then uh, Benjamin Bailey, number two. Uh, not only as a potential trade asset, but as a fast mover, a guy who maybe could be a big stick in the minors. Beef, pleasure. It was uh, awesome to have you on. Great to talk to you. Really good stuff. Keep doing your thing over at the 108. You guys are are, are something, and it's a, it's a good thing because <laughs> the, Sox, the Sox fandom needs the 108. They, they really do. So we appreciate your time, and thanks for all that you do. Mike, James, thanks so much. I'll be keeping my eyeballs on future Sox, particularly – on those those younger players that you guys give great detailed coverage to that no one else really talks about. So if you're a Sox fan out there and you're listening to this, that's the stuff you want to look at. You want to look at the guys that are in the DSL that they're covering that you don't know about, that, but you kind of want to learn some stuff about because that's kind of the next wave. So everyone focus in on future Sox with that stuff. Don't worry about the national list because now we're off of that track. We're now on to let's follow the, the guys at the low minors. That's Beef Loaf at Mr. Delicious 13 on Twitter. Of course, follow the at from the 108 podcast. I'm sure you already do, but if you're not, what are you doing with your life? Beef, one more time. Thanks so much. Cheers, guys.